Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Papaya Podcast. I'm your hostess, trying her mostest, Sarah Nicole, and each week I'm going to be dishing out some sweetness mixed in with some seeds of wisdom or something like that. So get ready to get inspired, get candid, get real, because we are all in this digital space together. All right, everyone, welcome back. I'm really excited about today's guest because we met in a pretty unconventional way. Avery Francis, this is our guest today. And her and I met because we, I think we just followed each other online. And at one point we've talked about calling in before, but she actually called me in on the fact that I was speaking a lot at events that were incredibly whitewashed. And since then she saw that I could do great things, but more wanted to invest in that in a really tangible way. And we ended up having so many amazing conversations, ended up changing the way I took on speaking engagements and really just grew into so many learning lessons along the way. And so I'm really excited to bring her on today to have some like really good conversations. So Avery, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me today. I'm so stoked. It's funny, I, I will never forget the day that you sent me that message. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know, because we've been so friendly. So it just felt like when we hear any type of even constructive criticism, everything inside of us, just like your hair just stands and your just back goes up and you're ready. And I remember I looked at it at a stoplight, which I should not have been doing, but it forced me to put my phone down. And I was like, no, can't. And like, I can't even, I have to process this. And through that point from that stoplight to being home gave me so much time to digest and put my reputation aside, put all my defensiveness aside and listen. And I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad that I was able to hear you that day. And honestly, it taught me a lot in terms of how I can take criticism and actually channel it to change, meaningful change, and not just because I'm trying to appease somebody, right? So it's been honestly such a journey with you and I adore you so, so much because of that. I think because you cared enough to say something, because you cared enough, not only about where I was speaking, but for me as a human being too. So I really appreciate you. But for those who don't know you, because I know you've had a massive influx of followers. What did you grow this week? Um, 40,000 followers. Like 40 in a, in a week is unheard of. Like really? it's unheard of. Like 
Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Like I've had it happen somewhat close to that. And it was because of something that went viral that was like out of my control. But for that was, you would have to be putting out some really meaningful stuff. And I think that's exactly what you were doing is you just have so much education and knowledge in so many things. And you came out with tangible things for people to read and consume. You were probably one of the the most shared people I saw on social media this week. It's wild. I don't know. And it's interesting because I'm literally just pouring my heart out into yeah. Canva. Like I am just, yeah. I am just a black woman that's fed up (laughs) that has a paid paid Canva account (laughs) and I'm just pouring it all in there. A paid Canva account. Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) Cause I love when you were just like, guys, I'm not an influencer. (laughs) Like you're just like, not what I do. Cause I think that's what we've been assuming is that everyone online with a social media platform, is this an influencer? That's what they do. That's who they are. When you see these higher, like bigger pages, but that's not been your mission. That's not what you do. So what is it that you do leading up into now? So my day job, (laughs) the thing that keeps the roof over my head is I actually consult with high growth tech startups. Uh, So I do HR and talent and diversity and inclusion consulting. And I help them to navigate uh, making the workplace a better place to work uh, for their people. The company name is Bloom and we help people and startups grow. That's at the core of everything that we do. I've always dabbled in, like I'm, I went to school for marketing and advertising and I love and have a huge appreciation for marketing, advertising, social media, digital media. I just absolutely love it. So for me, I've, it, those merging those two worlds with like what I do for work and what I consult on and then also this like little side passion that I have for design and tech and social media. It's been interesting. A lot of the energy that's, I think, taken me to 40, like 40,000 plus followers this week. I've taken like my angry Twitter energy. I always say that people get angry on Twitter and then people are like nice and fluffy and friendly on Instagram. Yeah, That's true. I've never yeah. thought about that. I've just taken my yeah. Twitter energy and it's not angry. I've taken my, you know, like, this is what I know. This is what I believe energy off of Twitter. And I've just thrown it onto Instagram. And I think that obviously it's topical right now with everything that's going on in the world. Um, yeah. But I think that people are finally really ready to learn about everything that's taking place and what got us here. I think that there's two types of like, I guess, non-Black people right now. We have Actually, a few. We have non-Black people that have been advocating for this stuff, that have been allies, have been speaking and have been vocal about the change that they want to see. There's the others that are kind of, you know, not necessarily on the same side and not on the right side of change. They want things to stay as they were, or maybe even I'd say take 10 steps backwards. Then then there's the other non-Black folks, in particular white folks, that are actually genuinely shocked to find out some of the information that's coming out and to learn little parts of history that for a long time were hidden and to learn about, you know, the subtle things that they've said in passing to their Black friend or family member that is actually genuinely like a bit harmful and hurtful. And I think that there's bigger things that we're talking about right now globally. We're talking about anti-racism. We're talking about history of like how we got to where we are. We're talking about 400 years of systemic oppression. We're talking about defunding the police systems. Like what I'm trying trying to do with what I'm sharing on my page and with my social media is the small little things, uh, the little tiny interactions uh, that people have on a daily basis uh, with a colleague or with a friend or even on a dating app, right? Um, That they may not necessarily know that are super harmful. And to me, those are like death by a thousand cuts, uh, those microaggressions. Yes. 
I had never even heard the term microaggression until this week, until your post. So can you explain what a microaggression is? Because so wild, because I feel like as a white woman who definitely, like I was taking Monique Melton's class yesterday and she was talking about the fact she's like, yeah, Black Lives Matter. You know, this started like seven years ago, right? We've heard it. We've seen it. My husband and I watched a comedy special the other night that was from four years ago talking about the exact same things. And she even said, like, even within this, it's only becoming a thing because white women and men are talking about it now. It's only because growing in this traction is because white people have actually like backed it, that it's becoming this discussion. But within that comes this great unlearning and this great learning at the same time. Microaggressions was one for me that I was just like replaying everything in the back of your head. But I compared it to being like at the end of a breakup with somebody where they tell you all the crap that you've been doing and you're like, wait, what? And like, you can't, you can't go back. You can't go back to that time and take back those things or take back those actions. It's literally, you've now been like, this is the end of the relationship. All you can do is build new, better relationships without that need to repair all that stuff and learning all of that stuff. But microaggressions, to bring that back home, Explain to us what a microaggression is. Yeah, so a microaggression is a term to describe a brief and commonplace uh, interaction, comment, uh, exchange with someone that may not necessarily seem like overtly aggressive, but it describes like behavioral, verbal, and environmental ingenuities that come up and that can cause quite a lot of harm. And I think that what I, how I usually describe it, and there's a really great YouTube video that describes it as almost like a mosquito bite, right? Let's just say you're at a cottage or you're out taking a hike and you get like 20 mosquito bites, right? Uh, over that, that time period, it is that much more frustrating and yeah. uncomfortable and it makes you angry, <laughs> right? Today's show is brought to you by Liquid IV. Taking a quick pause from the show to talk about one of today's sponsors because this sponsor actually helps me almost every single day because I do not like water. I don't know why I don't like water. I just have a huge dislike for it, which means I'm constantly complaining about dehydrated skin to feeling less energetic and blah, 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 blah. Yes, we need water to live. However, Liquid IV is an easy, healthy solution for dehydration because one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water hydrates you faster and more effectively than water alone. Each serving provides as much hydration as two to three bottles of water. So you don't have to worry about drinking as much. Plus vitamin C, B3, B5, B6, and B12. That's more vitamin C than an orange and as much potassium as a banana. It's packed with those vitamins to help your body defend against infections. One thing I love most about Liquid IV is they're on a mission to also change the world. Liquid IV is donating 2.3 million servings in response to COVID-19. Products are being donated to hospitals, first responders, food banks, veterans, and active military. But believe it or not, dehydration occurs daily in three out of four people, which leads to daily headaches, dizziness, brain fog, muscle fatigue, muscle cramps, dry skin, and more. Basically describing me when I don't take liquid IV. To stay hydrated with water alone, you'd have to drink eight full eight ounce glasses of water a day. Thankfully, there's liquid IV, the fastest, most effective way to stay hydrated. And what makes liquid IV so effective? Cellular transport technology. The optimal ratio of glucose, sodium, and potassium delivers water and nutrients into the bloodstream. It's the perfect balance to help you hydrate more quickly and effectively than water alone. 
Now, if you want to check out Liquid IV, it's available at Target, Whole Foods, and Costco, or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code PAPAYA at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you use promo code PAPAYA at liquidiv.com. Highly recommend the lemon lime. It is my favorite of the whole mix. Now let's get back to the show. Hey friends, my name is Olivia Perez and I'm an entrepreneur, journalist, and the host of the Friend of a Friend podcast. Every Monday, I meet with some of today's youngest and brightest entrepreneurs to make space to tell their stories and shine a light on who I believe to be the next generation of luminaries. I'll interview up-and-comers and game changers from brand builders to personalities, activists, artists, and thought leaders from around the world. Each episode lets you be a fly on the wall during one of the greatest pep talks, like a conversation between you and a friend or a friend of a friend. See you there. So I think that for a microaggression, a good example of this is like, if you see a black woman and she has like really great hair and you go, oh my gosh, is your hair real? Or um, if you say to a black woman that is getting quite passionate or excited about something, you're like, wow, like, okay, girl, like you go, good for you. You're sassy. And like, that's a bit condescending in a way. Or if you see a black woman and she's like just being assertive, Mm -hmm. right? And then you say, oh, you're being quite aggressive and angry. When you have these stereotypes, right, uh, that exist in the world that we live in today that have been perpetuated and kind of pushed by media and um, plays, pop culture, et cetera, et cetera. And we get to the point where you're kind of pushing your belief on someone or you're pushing this comment on someone and they're not really acting that way or it is a little bit harmful, but it's not overtly aggressive, Mm -hmm. right? You're not Mm -hmm. like calling someone a racial slur. You're not attacking someone verbally. You're just saying something off the cuff of your hand. And in some cases, it almost is positioned almost as a compliment. But when someone of, you know, a person of color or someone from a marginalized or, uh, you know, disenfranchised community hears those things over and over and over again in the workplace, through their life, you know, you know, in relationships that they're in, these things tend to pile up. Yeah. Uh, and microaggressions, to be fair, they're not just against, you know, women of color, black people and visible minorities. It could also be towards people that are, you know, have disabilities or women, mm-hmm. right? Get microaggressions all the time. Uh, like, oh, wow, you're too sensitive. Yes. Don't be so sensitive, right? That yeah. is also gaslighting too, but it's just like, it's just being mindful. Like what I always say to people is language matters so much more than we give it credit mm-hmm. uh, for. Mm-hmm. And the words that we choose to say um, to other people, those sometimes can really be quite harmful and can cut deep. So yeah, microaggressions are something that you find that happen um, usually when folks aren't necessarily educated on the experiences of another person that they don't necessarily identify with. You know, person of color, woman, someone with disability, uh, you know, someone that doesn't have socioeconomic privilege. Uh, those are the types of things that kind of build up. And those people are usually more likely impacted by these things because there is such a gap learning and what those experiences look like. It's honestly, this is one of those times where it's like, don't go ask your black friend what a microaggression to them is. There's so much information online. Go and check those yeah. things first. But one question, this is just me being super curious because we're going to get into a whole other subject in a moment, but you talked about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And this is one thing that I've been like scared to ask this week, but I'm genuinely wondering about is how much plays into population because we've seen a lot of this pull up um, or shut up challenges that have been going on where brands have to disclose from executive level all the way down what percentage of their employees 
and execs are Black or of color or LGBTQ. But I find it's really confusing because even though it's giving us that information, it's not actually taking into population of certain areas. For instance, where I live is 2.1% Black population. So if I were somebody who really wanted to strive for diversity and inclusion in the workplace, and I'm seeking within a 2% population, how does that work? And is that something that you've had to address with Bloom and with kind of some of these processes? Yeah. So this is something that's always leveraged against the conversation around building more diverse Mm -hmm. teams and building more inclusive teams. My response back to that is always doesn't matter. You know, if you look at 2% of, you know, a population that's still, you know, a few million, right? right? Or even a hundred, you know, a few hundred thousands, whatever. Still a lot of people. It's not like you only have a pool of 10 people to pick from, right? We're talking about, in most cases, hundreds of thousands of people that you can still select from and hire from. Not to mention, we have a lot of companies that are, you know, now becoming a lot more open to the idea of remote work, right? right? And hiring that work remotely, building up these teams um, and and distributed teams. So I think that to... And I, it's funny because sometimes company or companies that are based particularly in Toronto are often celebrated to be like, oh, well, yeah, of course we have like diversity within an organization. Like Toronto is such a diverse city. Well, that's actually not the case. Um, we're, we're finding a lot that a lot of companies, um, particularly in like uh, tech and these like kind of high, highly paid types of industries, tech, banking, finance, don't necessarily have the representation that you'd expect. Mm. Uh, so for organizations that are, you know, in a smaller town or a smaller community, yep. you don't see diversity there, but also in these companies that are based in like big, big, big kind of like ecosystems, right? They're still not. They're still not. Yeah. And Google is a really good example of that. I think that Google has like how many thousands of employees and less than 2% of their population and like within their organization identifies black. Whoa, that's staggering. That's staggering. Right. So I think that this is where there there are other barriers that are that are impacting how many people of color or underrepresented folks you have that are within your organization for sure. I don't think that location is a good enough excuse. So a follow-up question to that. When we're in the processes of hiring or desiring to be inclusive or diverse, how do we navigate between diversity and tokenism? That's a good question. So it's hard because it's like, it is kind of dancing between a thin line, right? I think that for me, the word that I like to use is intention Mm -hmm. as you're looking to build diverse teams. Uh, I even feel uncomfortable saying building diverse teams because really everyone within an organization brings their own layer of, you know, a diverse perspective, right? right? Uh, I think that companies that have people are inherently diverse in a specific way, but what we need to think about is intersectionality. So um, yeah, I I think that it's tough because companies, I think, need to take time to be more intentional Mm -hmm. with who they're bringing on. And I think that it doesn't feel like tokenism when you build relationships and partnerships with all the different community-led organizations and non-for-profits out there to attract and build more diverse teams. Uh, There are non-for-profits that are solely focused on this type of work. Uh, I actually founded a non-for-profit by the name of Bridge, and it is a free coding school for women and non-binary folks. And it helps to basically bridge the gap between, you know, the gender disparity between women and non-binary folks and, and men within the tech industry. Uh, and that is a free code school. Those are the partnerships are there. Uh, it's an easy entryway and relationship that you can kind of build as an organization. And those are like, there are 
hundreds of thousands of organizations that exist just like that uh, for all the different types of sectors that you find within, you know, the professional sphere of work. That's so cool to hear about. I know tech is a huge issue. I've gone to tech conferences before and uh, I've learned a lot about the issue is there. There's a massive issue even between gender, let alone women of color ever getting a shot in the tech industry. So you'd founded Bridge and you recently wrote an article about your experience, what it was like founding it and what kind of happened from there. So wondering if you can kind of touch on your experience with gaslighting in the workplace. Yeah. So gaslighting is something that I think that everyone in some way, shape or form has experienced in their life, like experienced it professionally. You probably a hundred percent have experienced it within a relationship. Um, yes. Right. Uh, and I think that just for folks that are kind of listening in, uh, gaslighting is when someone um, manipulates the truth uh, or um, specific events that have happened to try to basically cause you to feel like you're wrong and insane. Um, it, it makes you feel like and question real events that have actually happened because someone has done uh, and gone through to great lengths to manipulate you into believing otherwise, uh, which is a really hard psychological thing to kind of come through, uh, especially as a woman, especially as a black woman, as we face like, um, you know, imposter syndrome and uh, confidence issues and all that stuff. So when I initially uh, joined a company, a tech company in Toronto, for sure, uh, one of their big kind of pushes was they wanted to hire more women to join the team. And my big kind of ask when I joined as a, you know, senior talent leader was to do this and to kind of make this happen. And what I found was when I was actually reaching out to uh, women in particular and, and, you know, directly kind of trying to build these relationships, connecting with different Mm -hmm. uh, community led organizations, uh, I would have really great conversations with someone on the phone and then we'd hang up and they'd message me back saying, Hey, um, yeah, I really liked our conversation and this sounds like an amazing company, but I'm just, I'm not ready for to make the move. I'm not good enough yet, or I don't have the skill set. Let me take uh, a year to learn this coding language and I'll get back to you. And it just felt so disheartening. So I was like, wow, like the barrier between us hiring more women and you know not being a diverse and inclusive company yeah. and organization isn't actually us in particular, because we're actually going out of our way and trying to make the effort right now. There's a confidence barrier there. There's an imposter syndrome barrier there. And I think that a lot of people that are applying, and I mean, everyone here has maybe applied for a job, interviewed for a job in the past. Mm -hmm. When you do that, you go through that process. You always think, oh my gosh, if I don't nail this interview, right? And if I don't get the job, I'll never get this job at this company. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the company I was working with was like one of the top companies to work with in Toronto um, from a startup perspective. So I can understand like the fear that was involved in those conversations and the hesitation. So I was like, we need to figure out a way to help people feel more confident going through the interview process. We can build this relationship. And I got down to this one question I wrote on a piece of paper and I was like, how can we build confidence in people that we don't have a connection with, that we don't necessarily know, we don't see a day-to-day basis? And the answer was education. We could go out and recruit and hire or a bunch of other engineers identify as women at different kind of top tech companies, but that actually wouldn't help to bridge the gap or applicants to the bridge program. Women, all women identified engineers that were looking to like learn and develop and kind of level up their skills. We had thousands of applicants on the first day. For us, that was unheard of. Um, We didn't have, we had more applicants for that program than we did for any of our jobs combined of this company's lifetime of existence. 
it was huge. We ran a couple of cohorts and we did a lot of great kind of community-led projects and programs. And when I left the company, I had spoken to the person that I had partnered with in um, building this. Uh, I had the idea and I went to her to say, hey, like I mm-hmm. need someone to help me build this thing. And she was quite passionate about diversity and inclusion as well and about this particular challenge. So we built it together. And um, yeah, when I left, I just was kind of slowly but surely pushed out. Uh, and I didn't even realize it. It took me two years to realize that I was being gaslit. And it's funny, um, as someone that actually worked works within HR, works within tech companies, works within the diversity and inclusion space, I had at this point done at least 50 talks about diversity and inclusion. I didn't know what gaslighting was until about a year and a half ago. I was at a conference and someone asked someone, hey, like, would you position this as being gaslit? And I remember just thinking the word sounded cool. <laughs> And thinking, mm-hmm. I need to look that up. Like, what does that mean? And yeah, yeah, it turned out I learned what it meant and it felt like I was hit by a ton of bricks. And it was through small actions and experiences that I realized, you know, wow, like at first it started off as, you know, not being invited to meetings. And then it developed into not getting updates. And then it was, you know, they all got t-shirts and I didn't get a t-shirt for the bridge team. And then they had stickers that they developed and new kind of design and logo. And I didn't know anything about that. And I was like, okay, this is kind of strange. And then there was a couple meetings that we had scheduled that they didn't show up to. And I was like, okay, this is, that's bad, but people are busy. And then I got an email when I was actually in Budapest doing a talk about building bridge. And the email was basically saying, Hey, we want you to remove your title as co-founder. And you know, I'd like for this to be settled between you and I before anyone else gets involved. And I just felt like I'd been punched in the gut. How is that even possible? You can't take what is truth and twist it. So how was it presented to you that that would be something that you would even agree with? Yeah, I started panicking. I sent multiple emails back um, that were quite like reading them back, like desperate sounding. Like I was just like, what's going on? Oh my gosh, can we talk about this further? Like, I need to know, like, did I do something to hurt you? Like what's happening? And I was crumbling and I reached out to my lawyer and I was like, Hey, can you like, tell me a little bit about what this email means? And He said, you know, you incubated this and started this within an organization. Technically speaking, neither of you are founders. This is like basically a project that you started out at work that has legs and, you know, the company that you founded at actually owns this. And I was like, oh, he's like, so neither of you can kind of really do anything. If she wants to call herself a founder and you want to call yourself a founder, then so be it. Nothing can happen from a legal perspective here. And I was like, okay, fair enough. And then there was a couple of times where uh, Bridge was actually featured on like City TV and there was a bunch of articles that came out about them and the stories that were being shared about the fruition and like the start of Bridge were completely false. And just cut you out of the story? My contribution was minimized to that of the talent team. The talent team helped us with this. The talent team, you know, supported us with finding these people. And it hurt because I was like, wow, like not only am I being completely erased from the founding and the story of this amazing program um, that I built, that I thought of, that I put my blood, sweat and tears into doing, we have like on record articles being written by this person who's now also called herself a founder, um, who's completely distorting the truth in terms of actually how it founded, like the lies that were being shared publicly were just, 
beyond me. But I was in a position too where I am actually self-employed. I have my own business. I have people that I'm responsible for. And I didn't want to rock the boat so early into my starting my own business. I didn't want to create problems. And I remember speaking to my partner about it in Budapest. And he's like, Avery, you have so many bigger things you need to worry about right now. Just, you know that you founded it, let it be. And I did. I did. I let it be. Um, You know, there was a couple of, there was a bunch of emails that were ignored and, you know, there was like false information going out to the world that obviously challenged my credibility a little bit. But I was like, you know what? It is what it is. I need to focus on, you know, the other things right now. And it wasn't until last August, I had uh, talked about building diverse teams, similar to like what you and I were talking about earlier and on Twitter, and someone had confronted me and called me out. And this is the reason why I'm a big fan of calling people in because calling people out just sucks. And I was called out also in a way that was about something that was so personal that they didn't know what I had gone through leading up to that point. And, you know, I was talking about building diverse teams. I said, this is the reason why, you know, in response to someone talking about, you know, why racially diverse teams actually perform 35% better. Companies that have women on their leadership and executive teams perform better like the bottom line right across the board is it is actually good for business. So for any executive, if you're trying to push for this at work and you have people that are like, oh, it's not really a big deal. It's not a focus for us right now. Like it actually impacts the bottom line. So that's just like a little tidbit. If you need that convincing beyond just like human justice, you know, there's your little tidbit. So either way I had said, you know, this is the reason why we had founded, I founded Bridge. Someone called me out. Was like, oh, I thought that you know these three people founded it. I'm not going to use their names. It's not really them. And I was like, no, nope, I founded it with this person. And uh, I referred to her as Sharon in my article. Yeah. Then that basically, I felt like I was being dragged on Twitter. It was a bunch of messages and tweets and comments and reshares and everything about a storyline and uh, the building of a company that wasn't even true. And this individual, Sharon, on the other hand, was in support of all these comments that were being shared. And that's what pushed me over the edge. It was no longer this behind closed doors experience of being gaslit. I was being gaslit in public. I was being called out in plain sight. And I didn't know how to protect myself. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. So I didn't say anything. I handled it with as much grace and consideration as I possibly could. I stated that I believe that Bridge should continue to exist and that's all that matters. Who founded it or who didn't found it at the time wasn't really important. And it wasn't until recently, about three months ago, that I was like, I'm going to write about this. I had a little bit more time with COVID to kind of reflect. I wrote the article as a part of my own personal therapy. And a part of me honestly felt like this is never going to see anywhere. The only people that are going to read this article is probably me and my partner and maybe my mom and dad. Because you put it on Medium, right? You put it on medium.com, which is where you can basically freelance right into it. It basically generates on reads. Yes. My plan was just to kind of have it in a Google Doc. And it was nice because it was like a form of therapy for me to finally just write it out and write out what happened to me and what the experience felt like for me. And even to this day, like I can't read it. It hurts. Uh, I read it and then I actually worked with Pollyanna Reed, hired her to help me edit it and to read it. And I just thought it was an interesting story. And she 
helped me with like kind of navigating through editing it. And I mean, Pollyanna Reed is also, she's a black woman. This was, we were talking about black women, white women and gaslighting in the workplace. Yeah. Let's be real. There's a lot of it. And right now with the climate of that being kind of brought to light, I even saw a whole list yesterday of like black hair care products that are actually owned by white people. There's a whole history of like, you know, cultural appropriation Mm -hmm. and the thievery of black culture, black ingenuity and black innovation. Right. And it wasn't until I thought more deeply about this. And it was on International Women's Day in March where I learned for the first time that the sanitary pad was invented and created by a black woman. What? No idea. So something that all women, you know, who have their period, Mm -hmm. like I didn't know that she created it and invented it, but then they didn't let her have that credit until like years later. It was like, it was decades later that they actually ended up saying, oh, actually, this is the person that owned it and created it. Have you watched Little Fires Everywhere? Yeah. So if you need a demonstration of a white person gaslighting a black person and taking their work, there's a storyline within that where a black girl's experience in it, she kind of writes a letter of what happened to her at school and the white girl takes her story, changes a couple words and submits it as her college application and tells the black girl, I was just so inspired by your work that I was so inspired by your story that I used bits of it. When I read your article, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what happened in that show, which was like a book adaptation to a television show or a series. And now I was like, this has actually happened to not only somebody I know, but like a friend. And I had never even recognized it before. I was in this racist habits class yesterday and learned about the words that I've said that are like culturally appropriation. I was like things like, yes, queen, um, like, hey, sis, the say it louder for the people in the back. I was like, all of that is cultural appropriation. A lot of styles, a lot of like businesses. There is a lot. If you go and like take your time and research, what happens is it's basically just erasing its original finding and putting a white person's face on it and mass marketing. And it's really unfortunate. But your article ended up getting read quite a bit. It got some attention even of Sharon, quote unquote, Sharon. That's not her real name. Yes, yes. What happened next? So Sharon read the article. Sharon responded. The title of the response is Bridge... I believe it's like there would be no bridge without Avery Francis. So mm-hmm. she finally kind of, I guess, took accountability to a certain degree in acknowledging that I did found it. I didn't really need that. Uh, what I wanted mm-hmm. to see more from her was, you know, some actions that she was willing yep. to take. And I think that this is a big part of the conversation that we're even having now collectively is it's not just about learning and understanding some of these things, uh, these experiences um, and the wrongdoings maybe that you've unintentionally done through your life to people of color, Black people. It's also about acknowledging and stating what you plan to do about it. Uh, You know, how do you plan on changing? What are you going to do to make sure that this doesn't necessarily happen again? And we didn't get that at first, but eventually we, me, I didn't get that at first, (laughs) Uh, but eventually she did update her apology letter and she included some actions. The company and everything are going to take. But then yesterday or Monday, um, she released a thank you follow-up. And uh, basically, she has effectively stepped down from Bridge. So it's not necessarily the end result that I was looking for, so to speak. Do I believe that there are better people out there to lead that company that I initially started? Yes. Do I feel Mm -hmm. good about the fact that she took an idea that I developed and created and like 
basically she went to incorporated it as a federally incorporated non-for-profit without my knowing. It's funded by like and sponsored by the Canadian government. They've had brands like Glossier, RBC, been a part of this big kind of idea and is the mm-hmm. concept. And I'm not trying to take away from the work that this person did, that Sharon did. She did a lot of work for two years where I wasn't able to be involved. And I mean, she got it to a great place and she was a part of, you know, that success and having, you know, the Canadian government sponsor them and RBC be part of it. And to have Glossier go on as a sponsor, like those are all really massive accomplishments. But the way that it all played out and just knowing that I wasn't a part of that, it just makes me wonder like how much further could have been. And also looking at the leadership team as it is, it was founded and created by a black woman and there's not one black woman on that team. Mm. That's hard, right? That's hard. And that's facts. And I think when a lot of people hear stories like this, where somebody got called out or like had to face these things and then they like lose their title or lose their position, we tend to like feel that empathy and sadness towards that. And I get it. Like I'm such an empath. So like, I would still feel like, man, that still sucks. But like what more so sucks was like, why that even happened in the first place and stopping these things from happening. I mean, we've had so many conversations around privilege lately. And I think the one thing I took away the most from Monique Melton's yesterday was that she totally disclaimed that like people have different opinions. She's like, but I don't want you to use your white privilege for me. I want you to dismantle it. And the fear reaction of white people being like, but what's that going to take from me is perpetuating a lot of these problems. It's like, but I'm going to lose. And that's not the case. In the numbers, in the stats, in the information, we don't actually lose at all. Everybody wins. Like everybody wins. And we actually create a place of true equality. And I didn't even think about that. I was like, yeah, I should be using the privilege I have. I should be doing these things. And it's like, but what am I saying when I'm using my privilege and not just actually trying to take away my privilege and put it somewhere else? Like just get rid of it, dismantle it completely. Like even saying I'm going to use it still puts me in a position of power. Just a lot of like thoughts and a lot of language you write, like it's so important because as we learn these things, we have to go down to the roots of why they were happening in the first place. Why were these things okay? Why has it taken us so long to start figuring these things out? And how do we move forward and be better? Like, yeah, it sucks that she stepped down from that title, but I'm betting that nothing like this will ever happen in her relational and work world again because of that. So it's not a negative. It's actually like a really good learning experience. We were just, before we got on this call, we're just talking about how getting fired can actually be a really great experience, right? If it gives you great feedback and lets you be better in future jobs. I 100% think that she made the right decision. I think that, you know, as a community-led organization and not for profit you know, we need to have the best people leading those organizations. And I think that just the history that's there, I think that it would be problematic to still have her in that CEO role. 100%. But do I think that they'll be losing a really great contributor to that team? Absolutely. I think that mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I reached out to this person, Sharon, in the first place is because she she's good. You know, she's mm-hmm. good at what she does. Was there some conflict with, you know, the power dynamics throughout our partnership? Absolutely, right? Um, and sometimes yeah. power dynamics can do good. But when we're looking at power dynamics and how they interact and kind of work with race uh, mm. and privilege in the workplace, it can be really, really problematic. And I'm not saying that she intentionally abused her white privilege. Um, Mm. but she benefited from it and she benefited from my innovation and my ideas and the work that I put in in the early stages of getting that off the ground. I also think that when we talk about 
privilege, right? And white privilege in particular and, uh, you know, dismantling privilege. I think that we all have power in certain ways, right? I like to position as spending your privilege because you're never really as a white person going to be able to dismantle, in my opinion, your privilege. Yeah. Fair enough. It's like an aura around you. Like you just have it. And I know this because I'm biracial. I benefit from white privilege in a bizarre way. Even though I don't look white, I have grown up in white spaces and white environments. I don't feel like a black woman. And I've had this conversation often. I look like a black woman, but I don't feel like one because I was raised equally by two people from two very different backgrounds, from two very different races. And I feel like I have white woman confidence in some areas, like, and the the way that I operate because of the way I was raised. And because I have, my mom has obviously influenced the way I am as a human being substantially. It's not like the, I don't see color. Yeah. We have to acknowledge color. Yeah. It's more so about the, the human experiences, right. That I've had growing up. And I would almost say, you know, my mom, I always said this. I said this long before this all happened. I was like, you know, as much as I love my mom, if I would ever write a book, it'd be called Mom, I Love You, But You're Racist. I think that like racism, I look at it as a spectrum, right? From zero, we have like a passing, you know, microaggression. And then a hundred, we have someone that's like a part of the KKK, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's a huge spectrum. And sometimes I'll say like, mom, you have racist behaviors. You say racist things sometimes. And that's been a really interesting kind of thing for me to navigate because when I was younger, I didn't understand any of this stuff, but it wasn't until I started reading books like, so you want to talk about race and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, digging deeper into my own identity and my own background, my own history on my own as I grew up that I realized that some of the things my mom, my own mom who loves me to pieces said to me were really racist and would cause me to have my own challenges. So, um, as a biracial person, but one more note, I wanted to say you brought up little fires everywhere. I watched that the weekend before I put out my article and it was what pushed me to put out my article. Oh, wow. It's honestly so bizarre, the timing of everything, because that came out right at the beginning of everything happening. And it was funny for me as I watched it because I just wanted the white woman so badly to get it right. And I just kept seeing the good in her. And there was, there was a lot there and just a lot of things that you just didn't notice in terms of culture and adoption. There's so many layers to the story if you haven't watched it, but it's not a satisfying show. It's a real one. Yeah, yeah. And even just processing how you felt watching it and the fact that I really just wanted the white woman to be not a racist. Like I just really rooted for her so badly and just by the end was like, I don't know what else to say. And the amount of times I felt that the black character came off aggressive, there was so much embedded in there as a watcher and being the audience that kind of brought out and then everything happened in the news and in the media. And I'm really grateful for a show like that that could really show it in a way. And I've heard the book is way better, but that's really amazing to hear that that's actually what pushed you. Because when I read your article, I was like, this is just like that show when this happened. But (laughs) so you are a serial entrepreneur. I want to wrap this up, but I do want you to share a little bit about your other baby as well. 
we were supposed to meet up and be there in April, but COVID's a thing. Yeah. So tell us about Sunday Showers. Sunday Showers is an event series where we celebrate all of the professional accomplishments in a woman's life. I launched it a year ago and it really flourished, you know, in the year that it had time to grow. Obviously, we've taken a bit of a pause and we're celebrating from home at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, but we'll be celebrating all together sometime soon once it's safe to do so. Uh, but until then, yeah, you can kind of check us out online at join Sunday showers on Instagram. I love that because we literally have showers for everything that always pairs a woman up for other things. Like give a shower for engagements and weddings and babies, but to actually celebrate something as huge as that, I think is really special. So tell everyone where they can find you, where your wheelhouse is. I mean, now that you've had your 40,000 jumping followers, everyone's jumping on now, (laughs) but tell us where you are. So everyone can find me at Avery Francis. So it's at A-V-E-R-Y-F-R-A-N-C-I-S on Instagram. You'll see a little bit more about my life and I drop good kind of educational plus hard-lived experiences. It's been so helpful and so informative and I just adore you. So thank you for your time today. Everyone who's listening, go and check her out. Avery is going to just kind of rock your boat in the best way possible. (laughs) It's what she's done for me. So that's what I'm going to say. And we will see you next week. Well, friends, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to today's episode. For more information on this episode, check out the show notes or find us on Instagram at the papaya podcast. And if you loved what you just listened to or know somebody who would, please share it. Simply screenshot today's episode in the podcast app and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to tag us. Last but not least, if you'd like to lend your personal support to the podcast, take a moment and leave a review on iTunes. We would be oh so grateful. Tune in next week for a fresh new episode of the Papaya Podcast, and we'll see you then. Bye.